0: We began last week talking about, um, kind of for uh, Christmas reflection that we're doing here, uh, on the Magi, and I want to read the same, basically the same portion of scripture we read uh, last week, uh, and finish off the sermon that I began last week. This comes out of Matthew chapter 2, which says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, the word there is magos, means magician, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then now skipping down about five verses, after they talked to Herod, it says this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house. Remember, this is not the manger scene. Those manger scenes are inaccurate that say that they were in the stable. Uh, This is about a year or two after Jesus was born. They came to the house where uh, Mary and Joseph were. And they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Here's how they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. Very expensive uh, things in the ancient world. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. I want to talk to God about the message. And can I get some people who just will kind of keep the message covered in prayer. Pray for my health as we're going through. Pray that the, the word has all the power. In the back, I need some people. Keep the flank covered here. Okay, yes. Just keep me covered in prayer as the message is being delivered. Father, you're, you're, our, you're, you're our dad. You're Abba, Father. Um, you're intimately... And passionately in love with us. And we thank you for that, God. And God, our prayer right now is that this uh, message, Lord, would have all the power that you can give it, which is unlimited. We don't trust in human wisdom. Humans talk. Uh, you know, eloquent speeches, that does nothing. We, we trust in you to use whatever comes out of my mouth or anyone who's dedicated to you, Lord, to use it to, to furthering every kingdom. And God, I pray that you'd rattle the cage when our cages need to be rattled and bring healing when there's healing that is needed. God, let your word return as your word promises us. We'll go out and not return void. Let it accomplish all that you will here this morning, that we leave here a little bit changed. Uh, more sold out to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Mentioned last week that, that we tend to tidy up uh, the Christmas story a lot, uh, turning a story that in the original in the Bible, if you read it uh, apart from cultural trappings, it's a shocking story about a king born in a uh, overcrowded stable with a lot of animals and manure, and, and it's it's a it's a fairly messy story. It's it, and it's shocking because, well, this whole story centers on the fact that it's God who's doing all this. God's born as a little baby. That's surprising enough, but in the conditions he's born in, uh, it's absolutely shocking. And that's the point of the story. The profundity of the Christmas message is its shockingness. But there's kind of a religious cultural trend to make it nice, to make it more what we'd expect, to sweeten it, to make it quaint, uh, nostalgic and whatever, something that's worth thinking about once a year, and that's the tragedy. Now, The the, the stuff about the Magi is part of that whole tidying up thing. We we really haven't looked in a real straightforward way who these magi are and, and, and what they're about. Because when we do that, as we saw last week, the thing's pretty shocking. God doesn't like astrology. Throughout the Bible, he doesn't like astrology. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, like divination, doesn't like psychic readings, doesn't like tarot cards, doesn't like Ouija boards. Uh, he warns us repeatedly throughout the Bible not to get involved in anything that has to do with the occult, the spirit world, you're playing with fire there. Yet even though God despises astrology, here we find in this story, this is the shocking part, uh, astrologers, that's who the Magi were, professional astrologers, divinizers, soothsayers, spellcasters, uh, he calls them out of a pagan country to come and visit the Christ child. The country is Persia. These people work for the royal court. Persia is one of the arch enemies of Israel throughout history, and yet these are the ones that God calls, using an astrological sign to do it. Pulls them forward with with a star across the desert, 1,200 miles, taking about nine months to come and and, uh, visit this newborn king. Uh, It's absolutely amazing. What's also very likely and also shocking is that they'd probably be using as part of their information a prophecy that's given in Numbers 24, which talks about a star rising out of Jacob. And that prophecy itself was given by a pagan astrologer, soothsayer, spellcaster named, named Balaam. So we got pagan uh, pagan astrologers following a pagan prophecy using a pagan symbol uh, going across the desert to to find a newborn king. All the while, the religious leaders of Israel are sitting right on top of this kid and they don't know it. And the only role they play in the whole story is to be co-opted by Herod in an attempt to kill the child. The story just turns upside down all of our ordinary, nice, cute, quaint, sweet, serene, safe religious reflections. And that's the point. The story: Our God is a shocking God. Because he's the God of unlimited, unsurpassable love. And so what we saw last week is that uh, the story is meant to blow our religious presuppositions and maybe even offend a little bit our religious sensibilities, and that's the point. And what it should do to us is rattle our cage. Uh, We should be paranoid about safe religious mindsets. Uh, We should be paranoid, suspicious of things when when our religion is too self-serving and very comfortable. I think we should be a little bit suspect when, when uh, we're not being in any way inconvenienced by our faith. I don't think God goes out of his way to make our life a little more convenient. I think he goes out of his way to make our life inconvenient because that's how he makes it radical and that's how the kingdom is built. Somebody say amen. Yeah. Amen. Not bad for a NyQuil-induced guy here. I, mean, I came out really smooth. Okay, so uh, th- th- that that's what we covered last week. Now I, I want to pick up a-, a point that I referred to last week, but I didn't really have time to develop, and and it's this. Uh, this is also a central part of this Magi story. It's a classic example of God, uh, what we might say, getting in the box with us. Uh, do you all have you heard that expression to get in the box with somebody? Uh, I never have either, so this is forget about it. No, uh, my wife and her friends refer to this. I, I think it's a, uh, a, a, a. I bet no guy here has heard that much, uh, but but it seems like it's a, a female expression about getting in close with somebody. Uh, you know, I'm a male, so I don't understand these things very well. But they, they always talk about, hey, did you get in the box with them? Did you, you know, it, it means uh, did you get in with their thoughts, in with their emotions, feel their pain, uh, work out issues, you know, really get, get down with it, okay? You, you just, their world becomes part of your world, and your world becomes part of their world. It's getting in the box with somebody. Does it work? Okay, it works. Well, God, this story shows us, gets in the box with us. He comes down to our level. He, he operates on, on, on our mindset, even when our mindset is pretty carnal, screwed up, and sinful. In the case of the Magi, he, God gets in the box with them. They've got a hunger for him, and, and God is the kind of outlandish God that will do anything, go to any means, and stoop to any depth to find somebody who's hungry for Him and draw them forward. And so as much as God does not like astrology, He actually uses astrology to pull these magi across the desert to come and visit the Christ child because this is the language these folks speak. You got to see God up there as, uh, you know, looking at these magi and and, uh, it's like these guys in all of their screwed upness and, and there's even a diabolical dimension of this, they're looking up in the heavens to try to find the truth and so God is saying, okay, if that's where you're looking, I'll come down to your level and I'll give you a, you want a star, I'll give you a star and I'll pull you across the desert to where Christ is born. He gets in the box with us. He, as it were, suspends his own rules about uh, astrology, and he actually uses astrology to pull these magi uh, to himself. And we might think, well, aren't you afraid of, of uh, tainting your reputation? I mean, someone could interpret you as condoning astrology in this. But, and, and a person who's into their own ethical rules might think that, but if you're, if you're looking at this story through the eyes of love, you'll see that it's just a matter of God-loving God astrologers more than he hates their astrology. And so God uses it. He gets in the box with us. He talks our language. He comes down to our level, as, as carnal as that may be. Now, what I want us to see here this morning and, and really come to appreciate is that it costs God something to do this. It's not like just a, a painless thing that God can do. It costs God something to do this. And until we understand the cost, we'll never really appreciate the love behind it. Let me use this illustration. Uh, On Friday night, uh, a friend of ours, their daughter was uh, making her debut as a model. And so there was this, um, uh, what was it called, a modeling thing, a a fashion show, that's what it was. (laughs) Uh, It's a NyQuil. Uh, there was a fashion show, and so uh, we went to this fashion show. It was one of these high fashion shows. I never heard that term before, but, but it means kind of exotic, and, and you know, it, it's out there. Okay, um, We went to this fashion show, and our, our friend did really, really good. We're very proud of her, and it, it was a fine fashion show, kind of a stretching experience for a 46-year-old male, but I, I, I'm, I'm down with it, man. I'm cool. You know, you know what it is. So I, I'm into fashion. Okay, that was fine, but the fashion show was held at this club. It was club escape in minneapolis never been there before but uh as soon as the fashion show was done um, the atmosphere of this place changed pretty radically we had to wait there as uh, our friend went and got changed and we we're waiting for her to come back out and then we we're going to go home and while we we're waiting uh there was i, I can only describe it as a, a, an intense spirit of sensuality descended on the place like this it was like someone all of a sudden turned up the heat uh, boom, it's like that. The dance floor was full of people dancing, but, but that's not dancing as I remember dancing. I, I, I like to go out dancing. I love to dance. I dance in church all the time. Uh, but, but this wasn't dancing. It was more like foreplay, uh, honestly. It was, they call it grinding, and it, 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 everyone was sort of just imitating these sexual moves. Um, on the screen, there was this uh, kind of uh, pornography. Uh, You know, soft porn where they had strippers and and people touching themselves and and it was just all over the place and the music and the crowd and it was like all of a sudden we're in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, It was was kind of a a shocking experience, honestly. I, I, I began to grieve on the inside. I, I began to get mad. I, I, the only time I've ever seen this before is when I'm flicking channels and I come to VH1 or MTV and, I, and you see people hitting on each other and doing this thing that they call dancing, which is really a, a sexual foreplay. And, and, and now I'm looking at this crowd and it's like they're brainwashed by that media. They're, they're just doing what they see the people on TV doing they're, and they're hitting on each other and, and I, I was angry at the devaluing of, of, of the human body and the uh, degrading of this beautiful, uh, this beautiful Gift that God gave us, the, the gift of sexuality, and here it's being flaunted like it was a quarter, you know, worth a quarter. I, I, I was mad at it. I, I also found myself very angry at Britney Spears and Madonna, and uh, really, and I had to work really, really hard to do what I always preached we're supposed to do, and that's to love unconditionally all people at all times, no questions asked, no ifs, ands, and buts. I had to work through it to get past the behavior, to to see the heart, to see the hunger behind it, to see the emptiness there and to affirm that every one of these people are are infinitely precious and people for whom Christ died. I had to work in it. I had to work past the anger and, and all of that. I came home and I felt like I needed to take a shower uh, just, just to kind of like delouse myself or something. In the morning, all night long, I was haunted by these images that I saw. I mean, it was uh, it, women with women and guys with two girls, and, and they're all doing this grind thing. And I, I was in my mind, and I just had to, in the morning, I woke up feeling vacuous or kind of sick, and I had to just pray through the whole thing. Now, now here, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm a. I, I, I'm, I'm a sinner like you are. I, I'm, on, I'm on the journey in becoming Christ-like. Uh, I don't know where I'm at from beginning to end, but, but I'm in the process here. And I know that my, my sin sensitivity buzzers are still somewhat jaded. I don't feel the full impact and see the full ugliness and, and see the, the, the full destructiveness of sin. I, I, I'm, I'm a sinner like you. And yet in that environment, I was just knotted up. I, I was just, I, I was grieved. I was grieved. I was feeling ill. And then on Saturday morning, as I was working through this feeling, I I think it was the Lord who said to me this. A thought came to me, and it was just this. If you, the sinner that you are, felt like that, what do you think God feels about the sin of the world? Um, God is all holy, perfectly holy. Sin is as antithetical to God as not breathing is to us. God would experience the most minor sin as, as, as grievously as we would probably experience the most heinous sin. How does God feel about this? It costs God something to get in our box because our box is full of sin. And I could stand up here and be on a moral high horse and, and preach a sermon against uh, Club Escape uh, and, and maybe there's a place for that. But, but right now what we need to realize is that we're all sinners and yet God is willing to get into our box uh, he is willing to put aside, you see, the thing is this, the, as, as much as God is revolted by sin, there's one emotion, one and only one, that is greater than his revulsion towards sin, and that is his love for sinners. And because of that, he's willing to uh, uh, put up with the, 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 the grime, the slime, uh, the, the, the putrid revulsion that he has towards sin, and he enters into our box. This is what the Christmas story is all about. His willingness to use astrology is just a a little example of this. The the example of all examples is Calvary. We sometimes talk about the physical pain that Jesus suffered on Calvary, and we should because it it was nightmarish. Uh, Spikes uh, nailed into his wrists and into his ankles and a spear in his side and his, his back virtually whipped off of him and the crown of thorns on his head. It was a nightmarish thing that he physically suffered. But I believe that that is almost inconsequential compared to the spiritual pain that Christ suffered when all the sin of the world is put on him. Uh, What I experienced at Club Escape was nothing, one infinity of what God experienced on the cross of Calvary. He dives into our mess. Why? Because there's something he loves more than he hates our mess, and that is us. And he's willing to get his hands dirty. A prudish God never would do this. An uptight religious deity would never think about this. He'd be way too holy to use astrology and way too holy to get involved in my life. But the true God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, out of his outlandish, passionate, unwavering love, dives headfirst into the worst, worst that the world has to offer. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin. For us to be sin, for us to become sin, for us. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The authenticity of the righteousness of His righteousness that we have is paralleled by the authenticity, if you will, of the sin that He absorbs on Himself on the cross of Calvary. And I don't think we can even begin to get the the, the slightest, uh, faintest image of what it was like for Him to go through that hell. But he was willing to do it on the cross of Calvary. Not just the immoral sin of licentiousness, not, but, but all the greed of the world and all the hatred of the world and all the murders of the world and all the kidnapped children of the world and all the Stalins of the world and all the Hitlers of the world on the cross of Calvary. This is why he came into this world. This is what the Christmas story is all about. On the cross of Calvary, he absorbs the whole thing right there. He absorbs it. The horror that he must have been going through at that moment. Uh, no wonder he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's Willing to do it. Why? Because the love, the joy that was set before him was greater than the horror that he experienced. There's one thing and one thing only that is greater than God's revulsion towards sin, and that is his love for you. So he wants in on your mess. He wants in on your mess. Whatever the mess may be, you got to know this you can't out mess God. Uh, There's no depth you can sink that he won't go to to turn you around. Let him in on the mess of your life. I don't know where you are right now, but holiday season tends to be a time of intensified messiness. Has anyone noticed that? Issues kind of come to the surface, stuff that you can ignore all year long, now you got to deal with. Uh, You know, our lives get messy. All of our lives are to some degree messy, some maybe more than other by normal human standards. But you know what? What we need to do is let God into all the mess. Let him be born in the dirty stable. Let him into the mess of your family. Just invite him in. Let him into the mess of your brain. Let him into the mess of your confusion. Let him into the mess of your depression. Let him into the mess of your despair. Let him into the mess of your addiction. Let him into the mess of your fear. Let him into the mess of your doubt. Let him into the mess of your screwed upness. Let him be born there. Let him take it on. Let him get in your box. And when you do, you'll find that now he begins to work his Holy Spirit magic, if you will, and begin to turn it around, begins to clean up that mess. Even the mess, get this now, there's, there, maybe there's a mess in your life that you don't even want to get rid of. That happens. It happens. Somebody say amen because you know what happens. You know that this isn't supposed to be there, but you like it too much. You don't, can't imagine going on without it. Okay, God always meets us where we're at. You look in the stars, he'll give you a star. Uh, invite him in on that and see what you'll what you'll see is that the love of God, Paul says, leads us to repentance. He begins to change our wants, change our desires. So the thing that you thought was so precious, in time, your opinion of it begins to change. Let him in on the mess as you are right now. He meets us where we're at. Let him get in on the box. It costs him something, but he's willing to pay it out of love for you. Now when we do that, when we open up our box and say, God, come on in here, man, just as I am. If you want this mess, you can have it. When we do that, it really is the, 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 the first step in being born again. It's, it's, it's being regenerate. And the first impulse of the heart that has seen Christ and, and received Christ as the Lord of our mess, the first impulse is to worship as you just get a whiff, a, a, a glimmer, an idea of the worth that you have as evidenced by the fact that God was willing to pay the price he paid on Calvary. When you, when you, when you just begin to see that, just a, just a whiff of it, the first impulse of the human heart is to ascribe worth back to God. God becomes worthwhile to you, and the things of God become worthwhile to you begin to worship. That's what worship is. It's ascribing worth to God. First things the Magi do when they come to visit this king is they ascribe worth to him. They make a sacrifice which, is, which, which expresses the worth that this newborn king has to them. Now they didn't know a whole lot of theology about Christ. I, I don't think they understood really what they were doing. There's something inside though that says... This, this child has got, is very, very important, and they express the worth this child has to them by making a sacrifice of the treasures they have. Now here's what I want us to see. The fact that we can worship God is itself one more piece of evidence about how he gets in the box where we are at. The fact that he allows us to worship him and that worship counts as worship is itself evidence of grace, We sometimes think, I think, that we're actually kind of like doing God God a favor by worshiping him. And that's why we tend to to take it as sort of an optional thing. Uh, Yeah, if I'm in the mood, if I'm not in the mood, you know, I'll do it or not do it. But in fact, if we understand it rightly, we'll see that it's only the grace of God that allows us to worship him. Let me make the point this way. Think about this. Where did the magi, they, they offered gold, incense, and myrrh. That's very expensive gifts in the ancient world. Where did they get the money to buy those gifts? Where did those treasures come from? And the answer is from their occult practices. They were the professional magicians, spellcasters, astrologers, soothsayers of the king. The king would go to them whenever he was going to make an important decision and say, what do the gods say or what do the stars say or what does the wind say or whatever. And then they would do their little soothsaying stuff and give him back a response and he would pay them handsomely for that. For, for that. These astrologers were, were wealthy. They were part of the royal court and that's where these treasures came from. This is a cult. Uh, th- This is an occult offering. And what is amazing is that in the context of this story... God accepts that occult offering as worship. I can see a Pharisee looking at this, and it's kind of like, just, you know, if a Pharisee was in the house, there, as these astrologers come in there, and the Pharisee, of course, knows the rule that astrology is bad, and these, these astrologers start offering up this gold, incense, and mirth, and I can just see him saying, do you think the king wants your grimy, low-down, demonic money that you made off of talking to demons? Do you think the king wants that? But see, though the king couldn't talk as a baby here, the father's saying absolutely. Because see, God looks at the heart of a person. He looks at the heart. He sees the hunger that is there. And he's not condoning the way they got the money, but the fact is that right here and right now, they have a heart to worship, and, and it's the heart that turns what maybe otherwise would be sinful into something that is holy. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. You remember about a year ago, about a year ago there's a, a, a kind of a brouhaha that happened uh, this guy uh, won the lottery uh, the largest lottery ever won $290 million or something like that um, and he went public and saying I'm going to tie this to the church and to, to, to the Christian causes because I'm a believer and, and I think it, 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 it first has to go to God uh, and so of course uh, I wrote him a letter but he didn't send me a dime but uh, you know <laughs> I'm just kidding yeah. <laughs> but uh, okay so the guy wants to tithe out of this incredible lottery winning now there was a, a, an article that was written uh, called The Wages of Sin and the article basically said this uh, any, any church that is really committed to the cause of Christ should not re- accept this money because this is this is tainted money this is uh, a, he says here uh, if you win that lottery don't turn our way Calvary the road to Calvary isn't paved with Powerball tickets but with blood and we don't want your tainted mammon uh, we, we, we don't want any of your plunder, and, and you know, this is this un- ungodly mammon, tainted money, and, and so God doesn't want it. You keep it. And a lot of pastors got on board with this saying, yes, we are, you know, we, we will never accept lottery money. They signed covenants and got on the radio and and uh, all sorts of stuff. Now, now here, here's the thing. I'm not sure what God thinks about the lottery. I, I Honestly, I, I don't think the lottery is the best idea anyone's ever had. I think it does uh, it, it tends to work against the poor. It, it further oppresses the poor. I'm not, a, you know, a real big fan of it. On the other hand, I'm not sure where you're going to find an untainted dollar in this country. Uh, you know, I, I, you start going after that. Uh, you know, if, if if oppressing the poor is the qualification for whether you accept money or not, uh, then, then then you're going to have to turn away a lot of, of money. Uh, you know, and, and if, if if risking is not of God, then those who are playing in the stock market, especially the last two years, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want your money either. I I don't I don't want to I don't care. I mean, that that's an ethical. You pray about it, and you'll make the you know God will lead you. Uh, I don't want to get into that. But here here's here's the thing that broke my heart. You know, you may disagree with, with this guy playing the lottery, uh, but but the fact of the matter is that he obviously doesn't have a conviction about it. And here he is, won $290 million, and he wants to, in, in worship, give $29 million away. And, and that's where his heart is. Now, I, I, I'm not going to question that. I'm not going to question his sincerity. If a guy is going to give $29 million to the king, cause of the kingdom, I think it must matter something to him. And, and, and how he got there is not the issue. It's where he is right now. Right here and right now, this guy sincerely wants to honor God by tithing off his lottery money. And I can't imagine, how, whatever you think of the lottery, it can't be much worse, can it, than divination, soothsaying, casting spells, and playing with demons. And Jesus accepted their offering. Why? Because their heart, amidst all their screwed upness, their heart was in the right place. And they offered up to God. And when you offer something up to God, how, how you got to where you are isn't the issue. It's where you are right now. And what otherwise would be tainted and dirty and ungodly becomes something preciously holy in the sight of God. It's the heart that makes the it worthwhile. Amen. You see, you may maybe don't have a very good voice. Maybe you can't hold a tune. Maybe, maybe when you open your mouth to sing, it sounds like a squash toad with laryngitis. Uh, you know, whatever. I, I don't know what a squash toad with laryngitis sounds like, but I bet it's not very pretty. You know, fine. But the minute you, when, when, when you out of a sacrifice of your heart are giving that praise to God, your voice becomes angelic. You've got a holy voice that becomes holy music when it's dedicated to God. And it delights the heart of God and it causes the angels to dance. Maybe that you don 't have a lot of talent, you can 't play the organ like these folks can, and you can 't you know sing like Norm can, and you can't you know play drums like that guy can you may, maybe you don't have a lot of talent but you know what. You take whatever you can do. And, and when you dedicate it to God, the time and the energy that you put uh, in a Godward way out of the sacrifice of your heart, oh, you're talented in kingdom terms. You're an Olympic athlete in kingdom terms. You, you set up chairs for God, and that's, that's an act of worship. We're going to children's church, that's an act of worship. Uh, pass the bucket and ushering, that's an act of worship. Go out on a short term mission trip, or whatever you do, it becomes something holy and precious. The quality of the thing in and of itself isn't the issue. The heart behind it is. And when the heart is behind it, it becomes something precious uh, 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 an act of worship to God you got hands raise them up and worship and they become holy hands and you got feet you dance them and worship and they become holy feet whatever you've got whatever, whatever time you can invest you've got one dollar maybe you can't put in 29 million dollars rats but you've got one dollar and if it costs you something to give that dollar you've got to realize that's a holy dollar that's a holy dollar, and God can multiply it like the loaves and the fishes, and it becomes an outstanding weapon that God uses to further the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And even, even even, our past, even what we've done in the past, as bad as it may be, when we offer it up to God, he can make it something holy and precious, something infinitely worthwhile. It may be full of sin and full of pain, a lot of mistakes, uh, other people being hurt, but when we take that past which in and of itself would be maybe unredeemable, and maybe you think even unforgivable. If you say, God, come on into this mess, I offer it up to you. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, God can, can take what the enemy intended for evil, and he uses it for good. It becomes something holy, an offering of praise unto God. There's a young man last week who came up here after, I, I, uh, uh, after the message. real kind of fiery, vibrant young man who, he wants to be a preacher. I don't know why he was talking to me, but he wanted some advice on preaching. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's kind of like, like well, I, I don't want to go to college, so what's the next step I should take? And I kind of pointed him to YWAM to get involved in some work like that and start testing out his gift. In the course of our conversation, this is why I love, I love what God's doing here. The, the stories like this are all over the place. We've got to do a better job of getting them out there. But this young man, he told me he's just been coming here for a few weeks, but uh, God's working in his heart, and he's now coming out of... Uh, this group called the Aryan Nations, uh, the skinhead racist group, Aryan Nations. And amen, amen, amen. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Ain't nobody on this planet that's unreachable. <laughs> and so, and, and, and then he said this, he says, you know, I, I, God's just kind of doing a work in me and, and I'm, I'm you know, really going in this direction, uh, but I've got racist tattoos all over me. Uh, real vile racist tattoos, and I'm wondering, is this going to be like a a hindrance in ministry? And I I felt like the Lord just sort of, you know, like a spirit of prophecy came on me as I'm talking to him. And young man, if you're here, I don't remember your name, but if you're here, I want you to listen up because I'm going to add to it. Um, uh, But there was just a prophetic word that I gave him, and it was basically this. It is really bad what you were involved in, but it is really, really good that you're coming out of it. Amen? Amen. And... What God, what the enemy intends for evil, God can use for good. And, and, and you got to know what, what the enemy thought was a disqualification. Now is going to become part of your qualification for ministry. And God is going to raise you up and give you a, a, a love, a fire, a passion for people of color like you can't believe. You're going you're to gonna want to hug every African American you see. And you're going to want to kiss Native Americans. You're going to just fellowship with the Hmong and Japanese or whoever. God's going to give you this outlandish love. And you are going to be used to tear down racial walls. And you are going to be let, used to set the captives who In bondage to racism free, amen. 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 And those scars on your body, those things on your body which otherwise would be emblems uh, to Satan are here gonna be used as as, as evidences uh, that God can use to reach people that maybe I could never reach. You get credibility with those races because of they, they can see your past and you'll speak into their life. You see, when we take our past and offer it up to God in worship. Uh, The genius, wise God can take it and weave something beautiful out of it. And even our failures become successes when we submit them to God. How you got to where you are right now maybe isn't a pretty picture, but you got to know, if right now your heart is to worship God and you let him in on that box and offer it up to God, he weaves something beautiful and marvelous out of it. Praise God. The first impulse of the heart, hallelujah, touched by God, is, is to ascribe worth to God. Uh, to turn it back to God, all that we have, we just offer it up to God. The second impulse is to take what God has done for you and now you replicate it towards others. Uh, he got in your box and now there is, if you'll listen to it, if you be sensitive to the Spirit, inside of every believer, there's an impulse to be Christ-like to others, which is about setting aside our ethical opinions to get into the box of others. As God did with the astrologers, so we are called to do. We collapse the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the main thing that prevents love from happening, in order to enter into the box of others. Uh, This is the center of the center, we said all last year. Uh, the commandment to love is the greatest of the commandments in the Bible. Above all, Paul says, put on love. You live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We're to live in this. We're to breathe this. We're to think this. Uh, if, if you love, Paul says, you, you fulfill the entire law. Jesus says the same thing. But if you don't love, there's nothing that you do that's of any kingdom value. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the center of the center, and we're called to live in love and to replicate the love that we've received from God for free to replicate that towards other people. What often happens is we prevent this from from happening because... uh, we can 't suspend our ethical judgment, we, we have opinions about a lot of things, and so we see a person in need and, and we come up with maybe an idea that oh you know I wonder what they did to deserve that uh, I, I, you know it 's their own fault for being poor or, you know it 's their own fault for being homeless and, and you know this is a land of equal opportunity right and so so if, if, if somebody doesn 't have a middle in class middle class income, it must be their own doing if they just worked hard like I worked hard, well then they would have it and, and how convenient such thinking is because now we don 't have to ever be incon- Convenienced with compassion. You see, we, we, we set ourselves at bay with a sense of moral superiority. The thing that amazes me about the ministry of Jesus, one of the many things that amazes me about the ministry of Jesus, is, did you ever notice this? Throughout his whole ministry, he's dealing with the lowest dregs of society, if I could put it like that. He's dealing with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and, and, and the lepers and all those folks. He's dealing with demonized people. You know, we're talking, about, we're talking about some seriously demonically possessed people. Never once does he ask an ethical question. Not once. Well, Mary Magdalene, you got six demons in you. Wonder how you got those, huh? Think about it. He never goes there. His disciples go there and he rebukes them. Who sinned that this man was born blind? We all Our, our omniscience mechanism, that fallen knowledge of good and evil, we want to blame somebody so we can feel a little bit more righteous and be excused from being inconvenienced. Uh, Jesus says, ne- neither this man nor his parents, but let God be glorified. Let God be glorified. However he got blind, what matters now is we bring healing to him. However she got possessed, what matters now is we deliver her from that. However you got sick, what matters now is that we pray for healing. However you got so lonely, what matters now is is that we can can fellowship with you. You need comfort, we bring kingdom comfort. You need peace, we bring kingdom peace. You need healing, we bring kingdom healing. You need deliverance, we bring kingdom deliverance. You need fellowship, we bring kingdom uh, fellowship. How you got to where you are is utterly irrelevant. What matters is right here and right now. God's got something to meet you where you are at, to get inside your box. Amen? Amen. Amen. The only time Jesus ever brought up anyone's past was in John chapter 4 with a woman that was married to five different guys at different times and now was living with the guy who she wasn't married to. And the only reason Jesus brought it up was to convince her that he loves her in spite of that. Let's take care of that issue right away here. You know, I, I know everything about you, but you know what? The offer about water is still on the table. You want the water that I have to drink? It's still on the table. I just want you to know, in case you were wondering about that, that's not, that's not an issue for me a marvelous, loving Savior, and we are called to replicate that love in the relationships in our life, to get out of the box, to not let our ethical opinions be a hindrance to our fellowshipping with anybody on this planet. I, I, I'm reading a story, right, a book right now, called Not Religion, But Love by David Andrews. I, I saw the, the, the book in a, uh, at a conference I was at, and I'm writing a book right now called Repenting of Religion. And so the titles are kind of similar, so I thought I'd better check out the competition. So I, I got this book, and, and it's a pretty good book. Uh, of course, not as good as what I'm doing, but it's still a pretty good book. That was the NyQuil talking. Um and uh, it, it's mainly a story of this, this, this guy. He's kind of a liberal Christian, but, but a real radical lover. And, and uh, it's a lot of stories about his ministry in, in different uh, impoverished areas. He tells this story. It, it illustrates perfectly the point I'm making here. Uh, he, he and a friend were, were ministering in, I think it was Brisbane, Australia, the poor part of Brisbane. And uh, his friend was, is a medical doctor, Dr. John Hughes, who was in this clinic, working in this clinic uh, for the poor. Uh, and the story he tells about John Hughes is this. Uh, a young lady uh, named Jane came into his uh, clinic, and she was a prostitute. She has two children, and she f- says that she can't feed them unless she is willing to prostitute herself. And what she wants from John is uh, medical attention. Will you help me not get pregnant? Will you help me uh, stay clean of uh, sexually transmitted diseases? If I get a sexually transmitted disease, will you treat me? If I get beat up, which is very likely uh, in this profession, will you, uh, will you treat me? And so he, he wants to have John there as sort of an advocate for her. Now, John is a Christian guy and has high moral standards, of course. And so uh, he doesn't like any semblance of condoning prostitution. So he talks to, 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 to Jenny. Uh, did I say her name? There's a Jane and a Jenny? Did I say Jenny or Jane? Jane. Okay, we'll stick with Jane. There's, there's two of them. I can't remember which one was first. Um, Jane. He, he, he doesn't want to condone what Jane's doing, so he tries to talk with her and encourage Jane not to, you know, to find... Surely there must be some other way of, of making a living. And, 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 you know, he talks about how bad prostitution is and, and, and how it destroys society and how it destroys people and, and tries to talk her out of it. And for a year, for, for an hour, lectures her. In the end, Jane says, I know this is what I got to do, and since you're not going to help me, I'll, she left. She left the clinic and never came back. And John, on the one hand, felt like he took the moral high road in saying, I will not have anything to do with prostitution. On the other hand, he was grieved because he was thinking, now she's probably out there uh, doing her business without any kind of protection, and passing on sexually transmitted diseases, and if she get, gets beat up, she has no one to turn to. Did I make, did I, did I, did I make the right decision? See, in the, in the messy world, sometimes decisions are tough, aren't they? It's not all, we always like to make it so clean cut. Life is messy, uh, you know, And, and, and so he, he was wondering, did he make the right decision? Or is this a case where he put his ethics above a person? Where he put ethics above love? Some A few months later, another lady came into his office. He calls her Jenny. And um, almost, in the, almost in the exact same situation, Jenny had two children, had just left her husband, doesn't tell say why that happened, but left her husband, has two children, and the only way she can support herself is by prostitution, working in an escort service, and this escort service requires that she has medical attention. She can't afford any medical attention, so she's going to this uh, poor clinic. And so what she wants is just some help in not getting pregnant, help in not getting a sexually transmitted disease. If I get a sexually transmitted disease, will you help me? And if I get beat up, will you minister to me? And this time, John has a different approach. He still talks to her about prostitution. Isn't there a different way? You're better than this. This is degrading, and this is harmful, and this is dangerous. You know, surely there's other things we can, we can do. In fact, he could offer a few things because he's researched a little bit. But, but Jenny was, was just convinced that this is what she had to do. And so he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll work with you on this. I'll work with you, whatever you need, I'll, I'll be there but I want to keep talking about this, all right? Can we just keep the, the line of dialogue open? And she says, sure, but I'm not going to change. He goes, okay, but I just, listen, we'll talk about it. And so over a period of months, I don't know exactly how long, they develop a relationship uh, of, of mutual respect, and they begin to get. John begins to get in her box, if you will. Uh, when she gets a sexually transmitted disease, he administers some medication to, to, to counter that. Uh, when she's beat up and has a lash on her face, he stitches her up and, and, uh, and helps her. He's, he's there for her. All the while, o- occasionally bringing back, you know, i sure this is what you want to do. There's other ways of living. But Jenny wasn't ready to get out of it. There came a point in Jenny's life where she hit the wall, where her life exploded on her, where it kind of came to an end. Uh, because she was a prostitute, uh, she lost her two children. Uh, they went to the ex-husband. And uh, around that same time, her father, who was uh, an alcoholic, and there might have been some abuse going on there earlier in childhood, as there often is with women who end up working on the streets. Uh, but her father died, and he, she had never like reconciled with him, and she had no one to go to, no one to turn to, except for John. So Jenny goes into his office and and uh, basically rages and cries. And I want us to suspend our ethical judgment here so you can hear this story. Because I'm going to give it to you a little bit more sanitized version than it's actually in the book. But here's what what Jenny says. Uh, My life is all effed up. I'm nothing but an effing whore. I can't see my kids now. My dad died and I hadn't reconciled with him and I got no one uh, in this world. I'm an effing loser. And John, Dr. John, this high moral Christian man says, Jenny, you're effed, and I'm effed, and the world is effed, but you got to know that there was a savior who came into this world to help effed up people like you and me, Amen. and introduced her to Amen. Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you are afraid to clap for that because you're, you feel like you're, condo- you're condoning the F word. And it, 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 <laughs> see, th- that's the point I'm making. I, I, it doesn 't matter what our your ethical opinions are about this. He got into her box, he was there, and because he was able to suspend his, his, his moral judgment and meet her where she was at, uh, risking the reputation that maybe he 's condoning prostitution, I, he was willing to risk that because the, the highest and the greatest and the most profound commandment is to love and and like God, like God, whatever it takes for that to happen is worth taking. Amen. If it means putting at bay, amen. Praise God. If it means suspending our own opinions, sometimes it's what we do. We are called to live like that. Uh, to let God move us out of our nice, safe, secure boxes and enter into worlds that maybe are a little messier than ours, maybe a little confusing, uh, more confusing than ours, to leave the nice, uh, all, all things are answered security of our ethical and theological systems and, and, uh, and out of love enter into the box of others. To maybe to maybe let God move us somewhat out of our nice, enclosed area of riches and, and start to have a heart for it, to get in the box of the poor and move out of our nice, safe, secure homes and, and, and have a... I, I, uh, get into the box of the homeless and, and visit those who are in prison however God might leave to leave our, our nice little sanitized religiosity and get in the box of those who maybe don't fit our categories very well to leave the nice security of, of our box of homogenous friends where everybody is of the same ethnicity as us and to let God begin to move us to develop relationships with people that are, that are, 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 that are of different ethnicities and, and, and maybe it's a little awkward at first a little inconvenient at first you don't quite understand all that's going on but God uses us to you, and God uses us to build bridges. God uses it to expand his kingdom of love. Let God inconvenience you to get out of your box and to get into the box of others. Amen. 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 It's, It's what the Christmas story is all about, where God gets into our box, and now he moves us to get into the box of others, to take on their world, and that's how the whole thing spreads. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. Amen. Wherever you're at today, I don't care how messy it is, you've got to know that you can't outmess God. Let him in. And wherever you are today, I encourage you, however much you are able to get into other people's box, God wants to do more of that. And let him stretch you. Let him move you. All around you there are opportunities to do this. Just let God move you out of your conven- comfort zone and convenience zone and to incarnate yourself into the life of others that love may be spread. Collapse the knowledge of good and evil. Collapse the judgment. And love people as they are. And watch how God uses you to transform them, just like that's how God transforms you. Gets on the inside first. And out of that begins to clean people up. Can we stand? And I want us to close our eyes to pray. I want to ask, there's two two questions here. Just, I want you to, I'm going to pray for two areas. Number one, there are probably some here this morning who have a mess that they don't think, they think, think God's too pure to get involved with that. And I just encourage you to look at Calvary where God just says very out loud that his holiness is found in his willingness to dive into sin. Let him in, let him in. Let him in on that mess, even the mess you don't want to let go of. And maybe some are here who have never let Jesus into their lives at all, let alone their mess. And I encourage you this morning, I'm going to pray for you, but when we're done, I encourage you to come up here and to my right, uh, there's a table and and some people who will explain to you what it means to become a Christian, what it means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And for all of us asked this question, I want us to leave with this question. How can we replicate Christmas in the lives of those around us? In our spouses first, in our children second, in our neighborhoods third, in our employment places fourth, in the gathering area. Uh, How can we open our lives up to get involved in others, to love them and spread the kingdom? So Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you, God, just for... God, physically getting me through this message. I didn't cough again, praise God. And I want to give you the glory for that. Lord, thank you for sustaining me. Uh, God, I pray that you would, Lord, just by the tenderness of your spirit, touch the lives of those who maybe think their life is too messy for you. Uh, God, uh, work in their heart to show them, lift up the blinders so that they can see that uh, however much you may disagree with what they've been through, maybe what they're in right now, your love for them is... A whole lot higher than that. And God encouraged them to let you in. Lord, help us to let you into the mess of our families and the mess of our confusion and whatever other mess we have. And then, Father, as we leave this place, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would just stay on us and rattle our cages. Help us not to be mediocre, middle-of-the-road uh, just Americans who, who buy into the narcissism of our culture and live our own live with the goal of our own convenience. Inconvenience us, God. Teach us how to sacrifice and that we may find the joy of sacrifice. The joy of sacrificing for your kingdom and sacrificing for others, Lord God. As we leave this place, we thank you for for the way you have loved us and ask you to empower us to love others in the same way. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you at Christmas Eve.